Welcome to Conversations in Grief, a podcast from Anamkara, an organization set up by bereaved parents to help themselves and all bereaved parents cope with their grief and loss and journey on. I'm Sam Whelan Curtin, and in this podcast series, we'll be hearing from parents as they share their own unique stories of their children and their journey through grief. Joining us for this episode is Breed Carroll, a counselor and psychotherapist for over 30 years focusing on bereavement and loss, working with bereaved parents and children and adolescents who have gone through grief. Breed is also a bereaved parent herself. As we conclude the series, we want to look at some of the themes that have emerged through the stories shared by the parents who have spoken to us, and look at some useful tools and models in grief. Over the course of this podcast series, we've heard about a lot of different circumstances of loss and the different stories of grief, Breed, to start with, can you talk to me about how the loss of a child differs from other grief? I think the loss of a child is so against the life cycle that we expect, you know, we expect our parents to go before us. We expect particular people who are older than us to go first. But to actually lose our child just goes against the whole cycle of life. And, you know, our children, when we think about them, even when we bring them into the world, you know, while mums are expecting them, We're carrying that child. We're building a relationship even when they're in the womb. Dads build that relationship when the child comes into life and the dreams and the hopes and the expectations that we put into their lives before they even arrive is phenomenal. And to have that cut short, whether it's within days or weeks or whether it's within years as children or as teenagers or even into young adults and actually seeing that we thought we had them reared and they go before us, perhaps suddenly, it's very, very difficult for any parent to get their head around. We've heard such different circumstances in the stories that have been shared with us. Can you tell me, how does the circumstance impact the loss? Again, when we think of the different circumstances, it could be that a loss is expected in terms of perhaps the journey of loss began with a prognosis of an illness or the diagnosis of an illness. And, the you know, parents have been on that journey of caring for quite a number of years. So there's, there's an expectation that it may happen. It doesn't take away from the grief because actually in that moment when their child has left is as sudden as possible. And there's a whole new chapter of a journey must begin then with the two roles of being carer and parent been taken away so the identity changes immediately and on the other side if the if the loss is actually sudden where it has been to you know an accident or maybe at the hands of somebody else or, or maybe the, the fact that our own child has actually taken their own life because they couldn't actually cope that is so so difficult because it leaves us in a tailspin there's no preparation time There's no ending. So in fact, we can be left with a lot of unfinished business that I wish I had the chance to say. And, and, and you know, and again, when we think of COVID times, you know, losses that have happened where maybe we weren't able to be in contact in those days towards the end, where now we realize not being able to say goodbye has been a big, big issue. And we can find ways like writing a letter afterwards for ourselves that can be helpful in processing that unfinished business. That's most important, really. We've heard how everyone in a family can grieve differently. Mums and dads can grieve in different ways. 
And there's the impact on the relationships within a family, with siblings, grandparents and others. Can you talk to us about the different impacts of the loss in a family? I, I think as a couple, you know, if, if a couple has gone through a loss, and, and it can be very, very difficult because they can both be grieving in very different ways. The coping styles can be different. They have different history of loss. They have different personalities. They've come from different families with different attitudes towards loss itself. And getting on the same page is a very important thing if it can be done as quickly as possible. Again, that depends on the nature of the relationship because if there's been conflict in the relationship, that's not going to change in this loss. It's going to continue in the loss. And it's actually trying to work together through it. And that can be very, very difficult because we find that, you know, mums can actually be quite relational and they will find the friend. If they, if they don't have the husband that they can talk it through with, they'll find the friend. And the thing about it is it's actually realising as well that for us as women, we need to be cognizant of the fact that actually our men folk are grieving, but they do it in a different way. They think their way through the grief or they have the task. Or as a mum put it once, you know, I thought my husband wasn't grieving at all, but I discovered that every day on his way home from work, he went into the graveyard and he sat for an hour before he got home. And in that commute time, he was doing his grieving. And it's the task they do because men actually work with their hands through grief so often. Give a man a task and grief. And I've watched them produce some of the most phenomenal projects. You know, it could be a piece of wood turning that's a memorial to their child, or it could be a corner of the garden that they have actually now done as a place that they can actually sit together. And, you know, again, watching with couples that afterwards, you know, often you will find, I remember one young couple asking me to have a chat with them again. I had worked with them at the time might have been three or four years later and just sitting in the room and I felt more like a witness than anything else to their story where one was talking about an incident around the hospital and saying oh this was really helpful and the other was going oh no I didn't think that was helpful at all and that piece that further down the line in our grief we can actually say to each other you know how was it for you because I truly only know how it was for me and as a couple if we can do that we can really get onto the same page in processing the loss. But it takes time because one may take off on the bicycle and cycle the mountains just to clear their head or to get rid of whatever frustration or anger or issues that are in their head around it. Another can go off to the coffee shop and talk to a friend. And it's actually coming together. And I think the other piece that we need to remember in the family unit as well is surviving siblings because so often, unfortunately, they become the forgotten mourners. And, you know, they will say to you, you know, actually, I'm asked how my mum and dad are keeping, but nobody ever thinks about me. And the thing is, it's, it's a unique loss for a sibling because maybe they shared the bedroom. Maybe they fought cats and dogs with each other. Maybe, on the other hand, they were actually each other's allies. And it was the battle against, you know, if we were to get around mum and dad, we did it together. Or maybe it was the clown in the party, the, the life and soul has gone out of the house now. Or on the other hand as well, we might actually find the one that, you know, was always nagging you. And it's like that piece. So all the characters we are as siblings and how we play off each other. Or was it the person that was always stealing my, my best dress or so on when I went to go and look for it? So it's that, that relationship has gone. But their identity within the family and their role has changed too. Because maybe they were the second child and now the eldest 
And now I'm going to secondary school when in fact it should be my big brother and not me. And the thing about it is that, you know, maybe I'm left as an only child now instead of actually being one of two. And that is a lifelong loss. And in fact, the process of processing it actually takes much, much longer than people realise. It takes up to nine or ten years, actually, for a sibling to process that loss as they move on into adult life. And you can only imagine some of the, the times when, you know, milestones in life, like your graduation or your marriage or these, where the sibling that should be there is the missing image in the photograph. And there are so many varying ways across families in terms of the obstacles they can face. It's so unique to everyone. But can you talk to me about the challenges that most often come up for parents? I think one of the the biggest ones that, that comes up so often, I hear it over and over again for parents, is that the people who they expect to be there for them aren't. And they can't get their heads around it at all. And and it's like the piece of, you know, I actually thought my neighbour would be there or I see somebody dodge into the shop, in the shop door when they see me coming on the street. And I often think, you know, I don't make excuses for the people who do that, but I think as bereaved parents, we live other parents' worst fear, that that's part of it. And actually, they're terrified. And it's the piece where sometimes we ne- we nearly need to take charge of actually... You know, when we see them of actually turning around and saying, you know, don't be afraid to talk to me. Mention my child's name. I just love to hear it mentioned. Don't be afraid of me. Because sometimes we feel, my goodness, have I got the plague or something that they run. And it's horrible. And it leaves people feeling very, very broken. And I think as parents, it leaves us doing a lot of hedge trimming sometimes when we spend a lot of our energy giving out about the people who weren't there. And really, I often think if we had two or three key people, a doer, that practical, you know, the pragmatist that can come in and actually clear your kitchen of everything in it and tidy it up or cook the meal for you. Or the listener, just one person that can truly listen and be present to you, not try to fix you, not try to judge you, but just being there. And bereaved parents will say that so often. So that obstacle can be difficult. Not being on the same page is the other one. The communication, having open communication. Again, you know, in families, not every family are good communicators. So in fact, being able to sit down and talk about the tough stuff is difficult. But if that communication has been happening, maybe through in the illness of a child, or as one dad said to me years ago, you know, my wife took on all the medical stuff but I kept the fun things going. So he made sure all those activities that were going to be special were done. And there was no need for a guilt in that because it actually held a balance and roles were well-defined. And it's that piece because if we've taken those roles, we can have those roles afterwards. But we don't all have that pleasure and it's having an individual that doesn't pull with us. That can be another obstacle. And sometimes, sadly, And it's not all of the time, because sometimes you look at books and good Lord, it's this piece of, oh, the threat of separation because you've gone through the loss of a child. And I think, no, it's actually, if there's already cracks there that are are there, they're going to show more in these situations. But it's of actually trusting, you know, we have to be on the same page here. 
And that takes courage and it takes bravery and it takes a hell of a lot of love between a couple to do that as they move through. Something we've heard about a lot is that question parents get asked. How many children do you have? Are people skirting around the name? Can you talk to me about these occurrences that can be so hurtful? And I, I think the one of how many children and it's like, you know, we're into a new gathering and it's sort of so much of us in Ireland, you know, it's how many children you have or what do you do for a living? You know, it's all of these pieces and it's actually bracing ourselves for it. And I think as a bereaved parent, one of the key things and, and again, it's, it's a huge one for parents who have no surviving children. Again, is that question of how many children have you? And it's of actually thinking, do I trust this person enough to tell them? Or do I actually not even give an answer? Do I evade the answer on a particular day? And if I do give the answer of saying, well, you know, we did have three children, but now we've only two. We've lost one, unfortunately. That should be quite okay, because if the questioner is left with a, a little piece of tension for a few minutes, that's not half as bad as, well, I didn't actually say the truth, and I'm feeling very disloyal now for my lost child for the day, and I carry it for hours later. So we really have to trust ourselves. Who's the person asking the question? Do they deserve an answer from me? And what answer am I going to give? And I think we nearly need to rehearse that in ourselves so that we're ready for it. But it is an obstacle and it can be so difficult with it, you know. We've heard on some very particular themes in the course of this series, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on some of those themes. For instance, when it comes to the journey of grief through and following an illness. I think one of the key things that happens in that is that when parents are going through the illness of a child and, and as serious an illness as this, that can be life-limiting, that it will, it will move up and down in, in the trajectory. There may be moments of hope, there may be long periods of hope, and depending on the trajectory. But there's no point in that time that a parent can stop to say, what's the impact on me? Because the focus is the child and the focus is all of these appointments of how many that go on in a month for for parents the getting to hospitals the accommodation the financial cost of it the having to farm out other children to the neighbors or to family members and in fact one of the biggest things that happens when that child has actually died is that these parents feel completely exhausted and they don't realise, and I think one of the key things is of giving themselves credit of realising what they have actually been through and the journey they have already been on for a very long time. Because it's like carrying chronic sorrow or chronic anticipatory grief for a very long time. And we see it particularly for parents who have children with life-limiting conditions where, you know, Medical science has advanced so much nowadays that, you know, the prognosis in the beginning can be that, oh, well, your child is going home and, you know, you may be lucky if they survive a year. And with the love and the care of the home, the child can be five or six years of age and even older before we may lose them. But it's actually that piece. And of course, 
that is a hugely stressful place to live and of realising that there is a chronic stress that's been lived through medical conditions for years. And then the implication of whatever the nature of the actual condition is as well, because it may have an implication hereditary in the, in the hereditary impact on the family. It, it could be just what a particular illness actually means to that family, because maybe unfortunately they've known it too often before. And then on the other side is the sudden loss, whether it be road traffic accident, some other incident or suicide and the choices you're making in the moment while everything is happening so fast. What would you reflect for parents in those situations? I think with sudden death, like, I mean, we think about it and, you know, life is normal. One moment and suddenly that bad news comes through. Whether it's come through in a text message as it can nowadays or suddenly somebody's discovering it on Facebook just as much as it's no longer just a guard that gets to your door to tell it to you anymore. Unfortunately, social media can get there faster. And it's the piece of what do we do in that moment? So often it's to rush to be there. And sometimes being held back because, you know, those that are there, the first line staff may actually say, no, you'd be safe for not being there. And we don't have that buffer anymore. So, but we make choices in those moments. And sometimes it's actually the peace. And I think what's vital is the professionals will actually say to families, slow this down a little bit, take an extra day. I remember actually years ago training a group and actually talking about that very fact. And one of my group went home to discover that her son had actually taken his own life. And she said to me afterwards in the graveyard, she said, you know, she said, I am so glad that you told us to slow things down. And she says, we decided that we were going to take five days before we got to the funeral. And it's almost that piece of needing the time to process or to even take in what is happening rather than rushing through everything and then thinking, oh, it's done. And now what? And it's that piece. But we make, and I think one of the things is, as we go through our grief, of actually being very gentle with ourselves, of realising that every choice we make in these situations, we make it with the information we have at that time. And hindsight's twenty twenty, and we can beat ourselves up sometimes about a choice we made around something. And it's looking at it and thinking, okay, can you live with the, the ambiguity of having made that choice? And it's being gentle with yourself and saying, no, I made the best choice I could under the circumstances at that time. Because I think we can, in hindsight, sometimes be very, very hard on ourselves. Why didn't I? Why shouldn't I? Why could have? But it's actually the piece of no. And I think death is sudden too. Sometimes it's like, but I didn't go and see. But maybe you just, maybe your body was actually protecting you. Maybe your mind was protecting you of something that was so big that it would have caused massive trauma and that actually you protected yourself from the trauma. And it is that piece of realizing that. 
but it's only in time we come to the peace of, of, of knowing that but it does and it can become a bugbear because it can be the peace of why didn't I or why didn't I or why didn't I you know I, I, I think back and I think of somebody dying in my family and sort of not allowing my children in to see them on a Christmas day and afterwards think why didn't I do that but actually you know there was a lot of restrictions in the hospital said it's those pieces and we make choices at a time that afterwards we think, oh, and it's it's the peace. And, and regrets are a part of the journey of grieving. We sit with regrets and we have to process them too. And it's okay. And another theme that has come up is the loss of your only child or having no surviving children. There are so many layers to that loss. Can you tell me about that? I think to lose your only child and have no surviving children, that it leaves a colossal void. That is there even a purpose to get up in the mornings anymore? That if we have lived, you know, and again, the meaning of this child in our lives and where they expect a child and where they, they really looked forward to a child and the whole unique meaning of their, their existence in our lives and to have nothing and the courage and the bravery it takes to make that journey through that grief and not to just lie down under it and become totally non-functional. And it's actually amazing to watch with parents in these situations too, that there are many, many things can upset them, little things, you know, the question of how many children have you that you brought up earlier, that can be a piece. It's so difficult to answer for them the piece of coming to realize that actually the fact that my child existed is far more important. And in fact, now I live so that they will be memorialized and that they will be remembered. And that is huge. And the lovely thing for these parents is of actually being able to turn around and say, and I'm going to do it my way. And that's a very important factor because there's so many ways we could choose to do that. I think one of the big things in it is that, you know, we have seen in the past parents who have lost a child, their only child. And actually, you know, I remember seeing a social worker questioning, you know, why this parent was still washing their child's clothes. But it was the natural thing to do. And if that's what gives comfort right in a time, that's okay. And it's that piece of looking at it of, you know, I find some of the crazy rituals that we will create in order to get through. And the idea that, you know, if we were always consumed with this child and that they, you know, we released, we lived through them so often in life, we will still do it. We will be constantly preparing mementos for them or preparing rituals for them or doing things that they can be remembered. And that's what's beginning to give us purpose. And then there's a major step that has to happen because we have to come back and ask ourselves, well, who am I now without my child in my life? And will I forever focus on being the child, the parent who has lost their child? Or will I be the parent who had a living child? And that takes courage. Because not that we're turning our backs on them, 
but it's actually I don't have to look at the loss all of the time but I actually can bring them with me almost encouraging me to live my life again because that's what they would wish us to do and to live in the legacy of how vibrantly they lived their lives when they were with us. In exploring grief, what are some useful metaphors that can help parents, whatever stage they might be at, to identify their grief? I I think uh, a metaphor that I use a lot of the time is the journey of grief, but it's almost like that journey that goes through a very long valley and it's an, an alien territory too if you think about it so you can almost imagine you know one of these scenes from an old cowboy movie or something where you're out in the wilderness and it's walking through this valley and it's like moving from one side of it where we had our loss to the other side of it where in time we learn to accommodate and the thing about it is we will all walk that valley at different paces. In fact, in order to start the journey, we actually have to accept the reality that we've had this loss. And actually for a bereaved parent, it may take us a year or a year and a half or even two years before we accept that reality. That's when we begin to truly start the journey of grieving. And if we stay faithful to it, if we walk it methodically, doing little things of giving ourselves time to reflect on our loss, engaging with the day-to-day of our everyday lives, we will in time come to a place where the loss actually becomes accommodated and becomes part of our own story, that we're able to tell it to somebody else who experiences a similar loss. I think we see that in organisations like Annam Carra, when we see the parents who are further down the road being able to come back and say, that was me once. Or I remember, as, as parents said to me recently, you know, a group of parents from Anukara were just chatting and they were just saying to me, I remember going into my first meeting and somebody saying, you will come through this if you want to. Because the biggest question is, will I survive it? And we can, if we're willing to make the journey. And so much of what you're speaking about there, it's how someone can cope. It's a devastating loss. Just facing it. Can you talk to me about that? I think to cope with grief, we can either be overwhelmed by it or we can be very controlled in it. So we get into a controlled mood of taking charge of everything else and not really thinking about our loss. And if we're controlled, well, it will delay our grief. If we're overwhelmed, we can go into chronic grief. But if we can actually move between both of them, that we have our controlled days and those days when we allow the grief in again and it ambushes us and actually we have a meltdown for the day and we take to the bed or we take to the couch and that's okay especially in the early days but if we're moving between the two we begin to begin to build this resilience that we need and that resilience gives us the courage to move forward and and it's a very healthy thing in us but it's allowing us and when we think about it it's like the idea of holding on to the memory of our child but also letting go at the same time. And we're, we're letting go and we're letting them, you know, move out of our lives to the degree, not so that we will ever forget, but actually we have to actually begin to engage in life again. And how are we going to do that? Because we're left with the question, who am I without my child in my life? So trying to find our new identity is an equal part of this journey as grieving the child that we have lost. And when we do it, 
we can really find that connection with our child again because when we've become strong in ourselves we can sit with the memories then and we can actually remember the delight of them and the things that they did and we can laugh about them and we can cry about them but we suddenly realize that their essence is with us and that they're only a breath away and that's the that's the gem if we stay faithful to this journey that is the gem we can find and i know and I, I've felt it and I've known it. I, I was just thinking last night of my own little girl that I had lost at birth. And I was just thinking about it and I thought, how do I carry her? And I thought, I carry her in my heart all of the time and in all the poetry I've written for her. But she's there and I remember particular days. And I do it quietly and I do it privately. But it's there. And that's the important piece. A lot of parents have spoken about coming to different milestones There are the birthdays and anniversaries, but also things like the first time you laugh again, the feeling of guilt in happiness, the worry of betrayal. Can you talk to us about how those moments and milestones can just hit you in that journey? I think the word ambush is a good one in it because sometimes you think, oh, you decide that you're going to have, you know, it's an anniversary day and this year we actually decided we're going to go off and remember in a place that we all went to as a family. And you have a lovely day and it's so pleasurable. And the next morning you find yourself in bits and it's like, I'm feeling guilty now because I feel I was disloyal to the child because they weren't there. And you get through, and this is the craziness of grief. It tosses us from one side of it to the other on this journey. And it's actually the piece of realizing it's okay. And it's okay to feel like this, that this is what it actually does. It can actually bring up and, and I think in the process of grieving, where we're moving in and out constantly, like a pendulum. There are those techniques, strategies and models around bereavement that can be helpful for parents. Can you talk to us about some more of those? For parents, what can be helpful? There's a lovely uh, image that I use, and, and it's actually using little cards with little gratitude pieces on them of actually... How about everybody in the family coming up to Christmas, writing a little card of, I'm grateful to the brother or sister who has died or to my child who has died for something. And it's held in a jar and on Christmas Day it's taken out. And it's very, very powerful ritual because it's very simple. It could be held in the biscuit bar and everybody takes it out. And as they share the piece that's written on their card, the essence of that child comes into the room. It's almost like along with lighting a candle maybe to remember on Christmas Day that they have brought in this essence. And that chair could be left somewhere on the hall table or on the kitchen table and maybe add it to. Maybe draw one card from it. And when we do, we can remember. But it is a very, very powerful exercise. And I've seen it in groups and I've seen it happen with individuals and it has a richness that is really, really strong. You mentioned about the storytelling aspect. And during the series, we've heard such powerful stories about the children of these parents. The vibrance in describing their character, their personalities and passions, all those different aspects. Can you talk to me about how parents maintain a relationship with their child who has died and the value of sharing their story with others? I think, you know, we have several types of models of grief that we look at and the continuing bonds model that was Silverman, Phyllis Silverman in the States with class and that developed. And it was the idea that if we hold on to link objects and so often in, in the case of 
being a bereaved parent, the link objects that we hold and whether it's actually even within a room that was our child's that we still leave untouched. And I think an aside to that is don't let anybody rush you to change it. Do it your way, please, because it's really important that. But in that space, there may be belongings or we have actually held those belongings in a memory box that we hold that we can go to or we have it in a photo album. But we continue it in that way. And those link objects give us connection to the person who is gone. And the thing about it is it helps us to remember and it holds that connection that we find pieces years later that we say, right, that's there. And oh, I remember. And, you know, we will see it even if the siblings that have actually held memory boxes for a brother or sister, that even years later, when they have forgotten that they've done it and they go back to them, they can really tell you some wonderful stories about the connection. And I think we as parents sometimes forget that, oh gosh, they were only six years of age at that stage, but they actually have these quite vivid memories of of a, a brother or sister that was either older or younger. So continuing bonds is a really good one. The other one that I love is is the whole idea that Nehemiah talks about of the narrative that we have a story to tell. And that narrative therapy is very much that we can do it in metaphors. We can actually create images and metaphors of of this loss. Um, Nehemiah talks about the the, the father who talks about the three-sided house and that one wall has caved in. And it is. Or uh, one that I I think of using is, is like the jigsaw. And that, you know, in our in our family, we had six pieces in our jigsaw. But now, in fact, one piece is missing. But we actually, it, it, it's not gone away completely. It's there on the edge of us, but it's no longer part of the intact new unit that we have to move forward in. And uh, it's interesting, only this week, I, I, a mum was telling me that her child had been in a shop during the summer. And I had done that exercise with her and she had actually found a jigsaw that almost looked similar to the exercise and was left gobsmacked, but actually bought it and took it home and has it on the shelf now with the rest of the momentums. And it's those pieces, but it's like that narrative story that needs to be told is of what happened, first of all. What happened to your child? We can get stuck in that story alone. I think particular types of deaths, like loss by suicide and that, can leave us stuck in the narrative of the event. But what happens if we move it to the narrative of, tell me the story of the relationship. Who were they? What were they like? Tell me the bond you had with them. Tell me the the things about your child that were unique to your child. What were the hobbies that they loved? What were the sayings they had? What were the things that made you laugh about them? So those pieces put together. And then, you know, we find that we have a story of legacy then. What have they left you? They've left you this wealth of memories, all those characteristics that were theirs, all those tiny nuances that you remember along the way. And sometimes it's the richness of actually allowing yourself to sit with those that can bring you to a place that in time you can write your own story of adjustment because they help us process and keep our child. You know, the, the one thing for bereaved parents, it's very much that relationship that was out there physically becomes an inner representation in our hearts and it's holding it there. And I suppose the process that 
overall follows that, that that ebb and flow that I talk about, that holding on and letting go, that managing our loss with the day-to-day is very much encapsulated in the dual process model of Stobie and Shoot. And it's the idea that we move as a pendulum. What I love about that model is that it is the only one that actually tells us that grief doesn't just happen to us. And in fact, we need to actively engage. The other thing it says to us is, grief's too heavy to carry all of the time. So in fact, we need time out from it. So having that pleasurable day away, doing something ordinary, that's nothing to do with our grief is okay. Remember what we said already, tomorrow we might be feeling in a bad place again because we feel we had too good a time. But grief's like that. But those models can really be helpful to us when we're making this journey. I think what could happen in the beginning with those momentums and, and the things that are the essence of your child, you know, as you said, the music, all of these pieces, the laughter, the dance, the, you know, the clothes they wore, all of these things, we can box them away. But I think in time, as we become stronger in ourselves, we can take them out again and actually be with them. And as we're with them, and then actually sharing them, because I think that's one of the key things. While we need to tell story and have a narrative to tell, we need witnesses. And I know working with some groups of bereaved parents and doing that, that by being witness to each other's stories of our children, that actually the children, you get a real sense if you're in that privileged place of being witness to it. And, and you talk about the vibrancy of listening to those stories for you. You almost feel you have met these children. You almost feel you know them. And I think that's the richness that suddenly their essence is with us. And I think everything of this organization in Anamkara, I think everything of every meeting that happens, that there's always more people in the room than we will ever see or imagine to be there. I think the children are there too because you just feel that they're sort of, look, yeah, got them all together, got the right people with the right people now. These are the people who understand each other. And it is, it's the kindness of strangers in peer support like Adam Carr is the thing that can really be helpful. And there is the value of different levels of support. There are groups, there are organisations, parents may be at different stages in interacting with supports. But can you tell me about the value of reaching out? I think when we look at it in Ireland now, we see, and thankfully just this year, the adult pyramid of bereavement support, which is four tiers on it, has come out. And on that baseline at level one is our friends and our family. It's our natural support network. And and with that, we need some information. We need to understand what grief is like. And that's where can I go for that? So we look and we realize that, well, actually, we could contact Anam Cara if I'm a bereaved parent, or we could get on to the Hospice Foundation or the Health Service because there's helplines, and they will give us our basic information and signpost us to perhaps the specialist piece that we need. We look at level two, then, which is the peer support that Anam Cara actually offers, is that we meet other people who've had the similar experience. So, you know, I've been talking to my sister or my brother or my cousin or whoever, but that doesn't seem enough. I need people who understand this journey, not just those people. And then we find that, you know, I I could have been, because of the nature of the loss, I could have actually been referred to counselling by my GP quite early on. And I've been talking to the professional counsellor, but that's not enough either. I need a group. So the peer support at level two is important. 
I may actually find that I get stuck in my grief, that I get stuck in the emotions of it. Or maybe there is trauma around what actually happened to my child. And I really need to sit down with that and process it. Or maybe I've actually unfortunately had the misfortune of having multiple losses in my grief that I have lost more than one child or I have lost, had other losses concurrent to the loss of my child. So in fact, I haven't been given the opportunity to actually process one loss before something else comes on. And I seem to be just on a continuous story of never ending loss. And it's actually... Maybe I need someone to unwork, to unpick that and to go back through each individual story on its own wealth and allow myself to process each one individually. But that's very difficult to do alone. We need specialist help, professional help, and that's level three support. And maybe we find that we've had mental health difficulties or maybe we've had major difficulties into coming to terms with this loss that has actually caused us to have mental health issues or maybe to have actually taken an avoidant approach of maybe getting caught into alcoholism for a period of time or to alcohol and the use of drugs. And maybe we need some more specialist support at level four that can help us unpick those health issues as well as our grieving then so that we can really process this. And sometimes, and certainly it's been my privilege over the years, these journeys can take quite a long time. You know, to accompany somebody on that journey can actually take a number of years. And I can think where multiples were concerned of journeys I've made with individuals that could have been up to five years. Not all of the time on a weekly basis, but moving in and out. And certainly for young people going through the loss of a sibling, I've had the privilege of working with them as children when the loss happened and even on an extended warranty, as we say, into more adult life, where certainly in the last two years, many of them have re-engaged again in the turmoil of COVID, where they're feeling quite anxious and quite concerned about issues. So it's actually allowing that to happen and realising this is an ongoing journey to a new place of accommodation there's no time limit on grief if we never start the journey we can never get to the place of accommodation and I think that's why sometimes we get on so many clips and in magazines and that individual saying oh you know but it's 30 years since I had the loss and it's as bad today as it was then but perhaps they didn't do a strobe and touch that you know actively engage with their grief Maybe it was the old models of feeling. Grief comes in. We're only passive participants, but we're not. We have choice. We have choice to actually reflect on this and to actually come out the other side. Or the choice to actually feel I can do nothing. And there is no hopelessness. It's okay. There is hope there. We can do something and we have choice. And that will allow us to become bigger people at the end of the journey because... Grief doesn't go away or diminish. We just become bigger to contain it. For parents listening, they may have listened to all the other stories in this series, just one or perhaps even just this episode. What message would you like parents to take away? Or perhaps others listening who are supporting a parent through bereavement or listening for their own unique reason? 
What parting message would you like to leave them with? I think for everybody going through this journey as a bereaved parent who has lost a child, of realising, you know, the intense pain that you feel if you're only at the beginning of this journey will lessen in time, won't always be like this. You will always miss your child until you go to the grave yourself. But the thing about it is that you can make this journey in your own way, your own unique style. I think above all, I would say to you, make this journey because there are nuggets of connection with your lost child that can be found when you get to the end of it, to the place of accommodating this loss. And it will make you a much, much stronger person in yourself than you ever anticipated you were capable of. Thank you, Breed, for sharing those insights with us and for the encouragement for those on this grief journey. Adam Carr provides information, resources and bereavement support after the death of a child of any age and through all circumstances. They hold regular group meetings and information sessions in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. You can find out more by visiting www.anamcara.ie or you can call plus 353-1404-5378 or from outside Dublin 085-2888-888 and if calling from Northern Ireland 28 We would like to thank all the parents who have spoken to us and shared their stories for this podcast series. Thank you for listening and be kind to yourself.